Welcome to Off Trail with Erie Metro Parks. My name is Mike Hensley, and I'm your host. And today we're talking about controlled burns. Woohoo! We have our special guest with us again, Natural Resource Manager, Tara Kaufman. Say hi, Tara. Hello. So everybody already knows um, kind of what Tara does at the park because we covered that in our invasive species episode, so we won't rephrase or bore you. Not that Tara's job is boring in any way. Not at all. <laughs> if you don't know what Tara does, go back and listen to that episode. Yeah, then that'll help you. <laughs> so then that'll force you to listen to a second episode. So today we're talking about controlled burns. So I basically gave Tara a giant list of questions that she probably gets asked all the time, which I know I've asked her those personally, like before podcast was even a thing. So, and Tara loves to be prepared for things. She's probably yep. one of the most prepared people I've ever met other than my wife. <laughs> so, so, um, yes. so Tara's going to have a lot to say about this episode. So before we start, do you get scared of controlled burns or did you when you started? Yes. Well, because when you, well, be, to become a burn manager, you have to have like 10 burns under your belt. So you have to have some experience before you even get training. So when you, when I first participated in a burn, I'd actually never done a burn. I've never, didn't know anything about it. didn't know the rules. So you're kind of just going in there blind and you're learning on the in the field you know just how it works so it was intimidating but it's fun and each time you get more and more comfortable and and realize you know what happens so yeah it's a little a little nerve-wracking i just want to point out that last year i participated in my first burn and it is terrifying it is especially when you wind up with mark who is <laughs> one of our operation staff guys who's he's 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 good at his job he's he's very he just he knows a lot of information but like he's like one of those people just like hands you something and you just do it. Like he doesn't give you a lot of background information. Right. Yeah. So he <laughs> handed me a rake and then said, just rake. I'm like, all right. So I snuck over to Brad. <laughs> and weren't you there just to like film? Well, yeah, like, that's how it started. Not yeah, right. And then he's like, he's like, are you like, Mark's like, are you helping? I'm like, uh, I guess. <laughs> I, am I guess so. He's like, perfect. <laughs> I have pants and stuff for you in the truck. So he gave me stuff. And then like, I snuck over to Brad. I'm like, it can't be just raking. He's like, no. And then Brad gives you the detailed who Brad is. the He's the burn manager, correct? He's the burn boss. The burn boss. Yep. So he, he then he gives me like a detailed description of what I need to be doing and how I need to be doing it, which also Tara and Derek and the other ones that are there, all we're all op staff, were m much more helpful than Mark. Not that he wasn't, but, <laughs> but he was just like <laughs> handing me a rake and was like, oh, okay. So yeah, it is terrifying, terrifying. Yeah, that's um, kind of how it started for me too. It's like you get a little bit of information and then you're kind of just like, all right, do this. And you're like, wait, what? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to do what with the fire? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so what is a controlled burn, Tara, like overall? So just just so you know, controlled burns are also called prescribed burns. So sometimes I use them interchangeably in case you hear me say that. But it's basically just intentionally using fire as a management tool um, and, you know, in our prairie habitats. So it's the lighting of fire. Yeah. <laughs> Light it up. <laughs> Light it up. It's on fire. Oh, that's a good song, but we can't use it. It reminds me of that part. What in Nemo? What do they call the mountain? Like wanna hawk a loogie or something. Wanna hawk a loogie. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. 
<laughs> Mount Wanahakalugi. Yeah. Oh, is that when they're the shark bait? Ooh, ah, ah. Was yeah. it that thing? Okay. The Ring of Fire. It took me a minute. Tars, like, I have no oh, idea what yeah, you guys are talking about. I have seen it though. All right. So, um, why you you said we use them as a management tool, but why specifically is the park using them? So. So we have a lot of prairie habitat, open meadows, and by natural succession, these meadows would start to turn into like shrub scrub habitat and then eventually into woodlands. So without doing some type of intervention, you know, it would just keep growing up and turn um, real thick. So we want to maintain those habitat types, which is why we use fire, but you could also use mowing. You can also mow the meadows um, as a technique or use chemicals as well. Um, so they've got a few options. So, and then this is a, this is not a question I prepared you for, but there are burn lanes, correct? Yes. Around each, around each a meadow is, we call them fire breaks or fire lanes. And they're like basically six to 10 foot mowed fire paths around the perimeter. And that basically just allows a fire break. So, you know, fire doesn't burn well in green grass. So those are green grass barriers um, just to kind of, as a protection buffer. Hmm. Okay. So walk me through like how it's pr like how you start in the morning like or whenever whenever you go out it doesn't have to be the morning i guess but whenever you go out to like start one of these prairie fires yeah well you're always going to first off check your conditions right so your conditions have to be right that day to to burn whatever your field is um one of the big things is proper wind direction so that just depends on the field you're burning right so if you know we're burning a field off of Route 6 near the bay. We don't want a north wind blowing all the smoke into traffic on Route 6. So you just got to think about wind direction depending on which field you're burning. Um, also, there's a temperature, air temperature window, you know, 50 to 80 degrees, somewhere in there is is what we're aiming for. Um, also, you're looking at relative humidity. So when I say fuel, I'm talking about like the vegetation in the prairies. So you want your fuel mo moisture to be at a certain level. If it's too much moisture, you're not going to burn very well. If it's not no moisture at all, your fire is going to be extremely hot and dangerous. So you want a certain level of moisture, um, and there's a percentage range that we go for that allows for, you know, a um, a good burn, but not you know an, an unsafe burn, basically. And then we also look at mixing height, which is um, when your smoke goes up into the air, up into the clouds. How high is it going? Is it going to stay low and just kind of hover and smoke out the area? Or is it going to have a high mixing height where it's going to go way up high in the sky and be out of sight? So there's certain parameters that we look at for that. So once we check the conditions, and if the conditions meet um, all the requirements for that day, then um, we're, we're good to go on the ground and start a fire. And that process is usually we start a backfire. Um, so basically the fire is started on a side that goes against the wind. So if you think of a fire going against the wind, it's going to be moving very slowly. Um, this creates, as it moves slowly, it's going to be creating this black line, which is a, your protection line, basically. So once that black line's established, your teams will start to move up the sides of the prairie and that's when the rake comes in. And so you'll be raking the fire. So it's a slow process, raking it up the sides until eventually you'll light a head fire. So the head fire is going to move with the wind. So it's going to be hot and fast. And it'll eventually meet that black line that you created in the beginning, which is that buffer safe zone. So there's there's other techniques, um, different methods to go about it. But that's kind of our, 
our main approach to a lot of the, the areas that we do. Yeah. So I went a little bit of the research that I did for it. Um, I read just because I had been on one and I'd seen the way that you guys did it at the park. Obviously we have a lot more wind and stuff to deal with here. Yes. So it's not like, I mean like sometime and, and like, what do you guys do if the wind shifts on you, like switches directions? Right. And there's not much you can do. And we've had that happen where, you know, the wind's the direction we want it to do. And then all of a sudden we get a wind shift and it switches your fire direction. It switches the smoke direction and there's not much you can do. You can, you just have to be diligent and make sure that your fire is not escaping or causing any issues. Um, you know, if worst case scenario, if it really starts smoking out the road, you know, you can recall the fire departments and just let them know that, you know, things are a little dicey, but we've, you know, we've had it switch, but never to like extreme measures where it's caused, you know, a problem. So I've looked at some of the ways that other, not just parks, but other organizations do it. Cause it's not just parks. Right. Um, I think we take a very, uh, proactive cautious approach towards it um and after watching some of these other ones where these people go out on gators and just like light it up roll it (laughs) rolling down the field like lighting it up like that's terrifying like you can't like the way from what i experienced the way we do it like there's enough people to where it's always in control like with the exception of a crazy weather event Right. right um you know, but like people just rolling down with a gator, lighting everything up. Like, yeah, that, that was terrifying. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then we also do, we do just prairies, correct? Yes. Some places do like woodlots. the woodlands. Yep. They do the forest floor. I think they have done some wood, wooded areas here at the park before I started working here. So I wasn't involved. So yeah. I don't know many details. And I've never been a part of one myself. Because in my mind, when we left there, I just kept asking Derek, how do we know it's out? How do we know it's out? I just kept saying it. And he's like, Mike, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> like Brad, Brad checked. It's okay. Like, but like, how do we know? And like in a forested habitat, that's where I'm like, all right, how do we know? Yeah. Cause you have a lot of downed well, you got trees and logs leaves and, they and smolder. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've even had, had that in meadows with like logs that's been laying in there and then they're just smoldering. I mean, if they're in the center and you got black all around it, then it's okay. But we've had, fires escape a little bit and then creep up into other areas where you're just spending all afternoon then putting that smoldering log out. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Melissa? Yeah. So when I went to school in Florida, that was a big thing. So in Pensacola, there's longleaf pine. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're like super, super tall trees, but you need to burn literally everything in between them. And they actually, I can't remember exactly what the point of it was for the tree itself, but it promotes tree health. So even just like some of the bottom bark burning is actually good for it. And I always thought it was crazy because you'd go out there like a week later and it's still still smoking. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, That's terrible. And you're just like, bah. Everything about this seems wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, everything that they would do was right. And I never really participated in one, but one of my friends worked for, um, what do they call it down there? whatever the equivalent to fish and wildlife is probably fish and wildlife down there too (laughs) (laughs) florida wildlife commission i think i don't know i could be wrong um and he was part of that whole process so it was kind of cool to go out and see it afterwards and because they had to rake and do all that sort of stuff and they had burn lines and it was cool Mm -hmm. um and then i guess they're like you can do them in like straight up wetlands too yeah which i which in my mind doesn't seem like it would, yeah how do you burn how, how, the, how the stink do you do that so yeah i was i tried to read a little bit and it's just like it has to be optimal conditions like 
it's a like it's a tighter window i'm assuming than what it would be for prairies and stuff like that yeah so. it's you know you have we always have a, a list every year of of areas we want to burn or that are due to burn and um you don't always get to them because of weather conditions or mm-hmm. you know if it's a exceptionally wet spring and the conditions just aren't right it just doesn't happen so yeah it's it's finicky but then you can rely on other control methods um aside from fire you know if it's if that's not feasible that year yeah so in a perfect world tara um how often would you burn a field like year every other year every year so like in general individual fields would be burned on a two to three year rotation you don't want to burn the same field every year first it's not needed and second you want a different level of growth on the landscape so you just don't want to burn everything off at once so it's all on a rotation and usually two to three years is is usually what it ends up working out to be sometimes you know some areas benefit from having it um year to year but but not not mostly so if you drive <laughs> i remember when i started here you guys had burned like I'd maybe been here for like a month and you guys burned Wyandotte mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yeah. That and, one's... uh, <laughs> was that, was that one of those ones? That... It was just, it, yeah, that field burns fairly well, mostly. So it's usually a, a hot, impressive fire. Yeah. Um, so if you guys are driving along any of our parks and you see these giant black fields, just everything looks like it's been gone. Now, you know why <laughs> it's because they've yep. managed those it. fields and stuff. Um, so what are and some if of you go to our YouTube page, just so our listeners know, oh, there are right. a couple of burn videos on there that oh, yeah. show the whole process. If you're, if you're more interested on this subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, overall it is, it is a cool experience. Like obviously I didn't expect, I, I thought I was going to be there for like 20, 30 minutes. And next thing you know, I'm there the whole day helping. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but it is cool and, and it's good. And I'm, for me anyway, I'm always trying to learn new stuff. So it was good. Um, so what are some of the benefits that we see from, you know, doing a controlled burn? Well, one of the main benefits is you're removing the woody species or evasives that are popping up that I mentioned, just being able to keep the, the prairie grass um, in there without having all the woodies, which also cuts down on pests. So if you think of ticks, you know, we're burning off that area. It might reduce some of the pests that we're, we're seeing in those areas. Um, but in general, burning just increases the soil nutrients so with that you know you're going to have stimulating you know better vegetative growth for you know the native plants that are growing in there and then you know it's just it's it's one of the more cost effective methods of managing these habitats so it's going to be you know cheaper to to do a prescribed burn than you know mowing with you know renting equipment to having to mow it down or even using chemicals which is going to be even more expensive well expensive and then you're also because if if you're burning you know some of those species of animals and bugs and insects can get out of there yeah as the fire is coming up or bed i even read that some can even withstand some insects can withstand uh those high temperatures of fire underneath that that layer of where it's burning which Mm -hmm. i was like what i know it is like so that's good. And then you're not using chemicals to spray and then potentially harming other things later. Right. So. And that goes back to like not burning an entire area every year or entire section. So you're only burning, you know, some sections of, of certain meadows. So, you know, if you think of, you know, nesting seasons for certain animals, you know, it's not wiping out the whole the whole habitat area. You're just doing sections. So it's there's still there's still a variety. Cool. Um, so when you are burning, well, when our operation staff and you are burning um 
is, have you seen any habitats that have been greatly improved from you guys? Oh, habitats, when I say that, I mean parts of our parks and things that have been greatly improved due to um, these control burns that we're doing. I mean, when I first started here, the, the habitats were pretty much established um, before I got here. So it's, you know, like fields like Wyandotte and some of the meadows at Edison Woods, they, they, they do real well with the burns. So they're just very successful and the grass maintains itself there. And so it's been good birding habitat. And, and, and some of the other fields, you know, it's more of a battle because you got wet areas and woodies are growing up and then, you know, the burns aren't successful in those wetter areas. So it's kind of a, a constant battle of using a multitude of techniques to kind of get the area under control. Um, but yeah, like fields, Wyandotte and Edison Woods, some of the fields at Edison Woods have just been um, really good at just almost maintaining themselves with periodic burns and just providing good good habitat for a lot of different species. Hmm. So would you consider yourself a pyromaniac now? Um, I don't know I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have been on a gator where you where we light, use the drip torch and light up a side, which is a fine technique in certain circumstances when, you know, but in general, you know, we, we do take a more cautious approach. Yeah. Which <laughs> honestly, if I, if I was the manager of the fire, I would be like, we're walking this whole thing. Yeah. Like well, we, see, <laughs> so. we have four burn managers here at the parks, myself, Derek, Mark, and Brad. Um, so we're all burn managers. So we all have the capability to head to, to be the burn boss of, of a fire. But Brad is typically our burn boss. So um, his the liability falls on him basically. So his his method and technique um, for that burn of that day is what we follow, um, and you know we because basically the liability falls on him as the burn boss. So yeah, and I, I like I said I couldn't imagine being the one. I don't want to be a burn boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with just the manager. I'm fine with the manager status and helping. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, because that is a lot of weight. Because if something, I mean, how long's Brad been doing it? I mean, a long, I don't know how many years, but a long time. Yeah, yeah. longer than Tara's been here in your, what, eight years? I'm 10 years ten, in. Oh, my God. I know, right? I'm off. <laughs> uh, so she's been well, here for 10 years, so he's been doing it longer than her. Yeah. Like, And he, he's got a good record so far, and you don't want to be that one who let one get out of control or, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, and that's terrifying. There's that's always big, precautions. I mean, you call the fire department and everything beforehand. They, they know you're burning that day. You, you know, we have certain things in place so it's if if it were to happen you know we can make that phone call and have backup but we always have you know water on site backpack sprayers and usually a gator with a spray tank and to kind of spot tree areas that might be creeping out from where you're trying to burn but but honestly from from observing and like i said i only did one so i can't speak universally for controlled burns here but i think the two most important tools in the entire situation are the rake and the drip torch yep yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you can't do it without those two. Nope. You could let it burn, but that's terrible. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, and like, I, honestly, when I did it, I was just like, he, I did good. At first I was right next to Mark pretty much the whole time. And then when we hit the bend up towards the road yep. uh, at, at Mason road, uh, he just disappeared. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to keep going this way. I think he thinks I got it. So I was just so afraid <laughs> of like winding up <laughs> yep. trapped inside or, like not doing something right or moving too slow, moving too slow. I'd rather move too slow than, than too fast, but yeah. So, okay. So when you, um, 
when you're doing these, you guys report them. I'm, obviously, you said you report to um, the fire, the local fire department to let them know what's going on. But are you reporting like what you're burning to someone specific within the state or in the U.S. or how does that work? Yeah, so we we typically do spring burns. So our burns are usually in the months of March, April, May, um, we, which is usually before it greens up, which is the best success for us. Um, so in order to do a spring burn, we have to submit a waiver to the Division of Forestry and get that approved. Once that's approved, we also then have to submit a form to the Ohio EPA. And once we get that back, um, we have our burn plan, which we put in place, which has all our details of how we're going to go about it, the location, the weather conditions, and then and then make our phone calls. So once we have all that in place, we can burn. And then after the burn, we also submit another form to the Division of Forestry um, with, with details on it. So there's a lot of paperwork involved, which makes sense, you know, for what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and you can't do it. You can't put a burn on without, you know, doing these things. Nice. And so all those numbers, like, it's crazy to think of, like, I mean, how many do you think we did last year in 2020? It was... Forget. It was under a hundred acres that we ended up burning. So what? Two or three fires, maybe. I think there were three. I think there was three or four. Yeah, it was when the pandemic hit, so I wasn't a part of all of them. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I pulled some numbers um, from 2018 for control burns. That's the earliest numbers I could find for the U.S. So in 2018, there were 6.42 million acres burned. Wow. That's. That's a lot. Wow. Like across the U.S. So now I want you guys to to take a guess. So that's over 200,000 individual fires. So I want you guys to take a guess on which states you think were number one and two. With the most fires? Yep. Hmm. We're talking controlled fires. Are we talking controlled fires or wildfires? Controlled. These are controlled fires, not wildfires. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Idaho. Whoa. Really? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like that would just literally you just put the whole state up right there in place. <laughs> Kansas. I don't know. I know. I was Kansas. gonna Kansas. You guys are gonna be stinking shocked. What? Florida. So, number one was Florida. Oh, okay. With over two million acres burned. The Everglades oh, wow. area. That's yeah. Because right. yeah. it's all longleaf pine. That's why. Yeah. Well, that's got to be a nice, good, sappy burn. <laughs> Crackly and loud. Crackly. And, yeah. <laughs> and then number two, anybody? Go ahead. What do you think, Cheryl? Um, uh, hmm. California. California. Tara? <laughs> She's like, I got nothing, Mike. Kansas nothing. again? <laughs> Kansas again. <laughs> I don't know. Melby? I already said Idaho. No, it was Georgia. Oh, Georgia. 1.2 million acres burned. Huh. So guess how many Ohio had in 2018? A lot. 70 fires. <laughs> 70. Oh. Okay. For 625 acres okay. that were reported. Right. So reported. not, I guess not every, if it's your personal property, you don't have to report squat. So that, that was pretty interesting. And I also, um, the most acreage, um, like with a small amount of fires was Alaska. Cause they burn like a lot at a time. Oh. Like they just like light them up and let them go, which I, I was just like, what? 
So, yeah, I guess there's a lot of open area up there that they just let kind of go. So that was pretty cool. And then I I wanted to pull some really cool, like, history facts in here because, like, controlled burns go, like, way, way back. Like, indigenous people back. Right. Like, we, we weren't the ones that, like, found out that this worked. Like, it wasn't, it's not like a new thing that people were doing. They've been doing it forever, literally, like, for uh, probably since they could figure it out. Mm-hmm. So indigenous people have been burning like pretty much forever. So anthropologists have identified at least 70 different uses for fire among um, Native Americans and indigenous people from like North wow. America and South America, cool. which they include um, travel routes. Yep. Like they would just use them to, to burn their route trails and things like that long distance signaling, which that makes sense because people, like if you're trapped on an island, what are you going to (laughs) do? Or trapped somewhere, I'm going to light something on fire to try to get myself Mm kind of noticed. Um, And then uh, reducing pest population, which Tara said, and that's part of what we do as well. And then they also used it to drive out rodents and hunting and and use it for hunting, which was the most fascinating one for me was the hunting one, like Mm -hmm. how they used it. So, well-established Native American populations, what they would do was they would use this fire to both drive the game herds into the areas they wanted to and push them out based on the season, which kind of blew my mind because what they would do is in the, um, they would like try to get them in the grasslands to where they could feed and then they could easily pick them off that way or hunt them down. And then in the wintertime, they would push them back into the woods so they could mate properly and do all that. So the first thing that clicked into my brain was like, wow, these people really knew what was going on. But they also knew kind of a conservation. They already had a conservation type mind to sit there and say, oh, hey, we need these animals to keep reproducing to provide for ourselves. We can't just off them all. Yeah. So, I mean, I I got blown away by these articles and like how they're able to, to figure out these really cool ideas. It's pretty cool. That is. So... And then I was reading even further, which this happens often, rabbit hole or bunny hole, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) (laughs) That goes back to our first episode. Um, That Europeans, when they first got here, even though they practiced it in like England and things like that, they practiced controlled burns there too. They didn't want to do it here because they thought it was harmful to their crops, their cattle and everything. So they didn't do it. So they kind of like, it was like a no, no thing. And then, indigenous people kind of like reintroduce them back into the practice, which I thought was crazy wild and awesome. Mm. So, and overall controlled burns are beneficial and a valuable tool in conservation and education as well. Cause when people know what it's for, cause even I remember the first time I had witnessed a controlled burn, like aftermath, not like actually just seeing one. I was like, oh, why would they do that? That seems terrible. Yeah. Look at all the birds that they're they're displacing and things like that. But then when you read or are educated about it later, you realize it's not really oh, doing that at all. Sure. So because yeah. you're kind of hitting them before the birds get there to nest, aren't you, Tara? So in the yeah, spring. Typically. And then you're you always s- going to have some fatality. I mean, you can't avoid it 100 percent, but you can. You can avoid, you know, certain windows and, and like I said, not by not burning the entire area, you know, you're providing and um, then safe zones. You said we do in the spring. Can you burn in the fall? 
Yeah, you can burn in the fall. We typically just don't because of staffing and timing reasons, oh, yeah, but a lot yeah. of people burn in the fall as well. And then I read somewhere you can burn in the winter too. I, I mean, I've heard people doing it. Yeah, like we, that, I've just never done it myself. How would that work? Like, especially, I, I mean, it would have to be dry. It would have to be a dry winter is it my only thought. It must be because, yeah. Yeah, because once that heats up and then everything starts to melt, you're just, yeah. It won't. You got to yeah, have enough. Yeah. It won't work. Wouldn't be able to burn nothing here right now. Nope. Our fresh half <laughs> one to two inches of snow we get every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just wake up every morning. I just shoveled that. I just shoveled that. <laughs> so, yep. Anyway, so, so Mel B, you ready? For what? <laughs> <laughs> the news article. Am I doing this one? Yes. Okay, hold on. Let me pull it up. So... You guys know how we love to talk about poop. Yes. Okay, yes. so this is a good Tara, one. Tara, don't act like you don't like talking about I was poop. Gonna say, <laughs> you can sit there and give us the, the cold shoulder. <laughs> okay, this article is fantastic. So the title is Sea Cucumbers Pinch Out Five Eiffel Towers Worth of Poop Per Reef Per Year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy. The picture is amazing, by the way. <laughs> this is on Live Science. If anybody wants to go look it up, I'm sure you can just type in sea cucumber and you will find it. You can so pretty much all, find all of my news articles from there. That's where I get most of them. So, well, so sea cucumbers are like probably one of my favorite sea animals. I know that's weird, but... They're really fun. And I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not, but in college, we took a trip to the Keys and our professor would have us all walk behind him and he would search for sea cucumbers and then toss them behind him and just hope one of us catches them. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> so there's like sea cucumbers, like literally flying through the area. <laughs> That's awesome. Sounds like a good game. <laughs> it was actually really fun. And you were did like you, terrified you were going to drop one. Did you ever get hit in the face with a sea cucumber? No, but I got hit in the back of the head because I was bent over trying to pick up one that I did miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I was like, yeah. Um, okay, so the study basically was talking about they, they took sea cu cucumbers and trying to figure out how much they actually poop. So one sea cucumber can poop about 1.3 ounces per day. So that's about 30 Same. pounds of poop per year. So that's how they determined that with as many sea cucumbers, hold on, where does it talk about? There's 3 million sea cucumbers that live on this specific island reef. So each year they poop the equivalent of five Eiffel Towers. That is oh awesome. My gosh. And the whole point of sea cucumbers is they're kind of like like we think of earthworms, but more beneficial. So they're um, the earthworms of the ocean. Yeah. So they go around and they basically are just like sifting through sediment and they're eating the sediment. They're stirring up nutrients. They are um I, they're pretty much eating whatever's just in that path. But it also helps to release out nutrients that would otherwise be buried for other animals. It also is really beneficial for the coral reefs themselves because when they poop, it is actually mostly calcium carbonate, which is a lot of what reefs are made out of. So 
That's so cool. They're so cool. If you ever hear Mel B, if you ever hear Mel B say she doesn't know things on this podcast, you should just give like a metaphorical like bat. She's always so full of like this crazy sea information that none of us know. And I'm always happy to hear it. Reading and regurgitating. (laughs) (laughs) Liar. (laughs) So, so that was, I know when you sent that to us, I was like, yes. And then Cheryl's like, um, this is going to be our next uh, news article. (laughs) Absolutely. That just screamed podcast to me. Yeah. So, and that, ironically, like I said, that's where I get all of my funny ones. There are some that aren't funny. and Well, and that's not know. even where I found it. One of the aquariums that I follow had posted it. Shocker. And I was like, I, Shocker. right, exactly. <laughs> I follow all the aquariums. It's ridiculous. She's my social media is so dumb because it's either like sharks and whales or farm animals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and birds and bugs. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, is that what yours is, Cheryl? Birds and bugs? Birds. I have plants, trees. Did you guys know there's a mushroom on? Yes. Mushrooms yes. of Ohio. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yep. Mushrooms of Ohio. <laughs> and morel mushroom one. Jatar's got a specific yeah, one. I got a variety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the vernal pools one. Yeah. Uh, the vernal pools. Oh, yeah. just so listeners know, if you you have any interest, which reminds me of, I just found one that is a U.S. based one. It's all across. It's all about gulls, and I'm terrible at gulls, I'm so I've had to gulls. like look for them a little bit more. So anyway, Ooh. it's just sifting through. Like when you sift through ducks, it's one thing, but when you have to sift through gulls, it's worse. It is. It's yeah, because they all look yeah, the same. Uh, absolutely. I just go with. I'm never going to find a rare one. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Right. And then you do. So I've only found yeah. one rare one. So and it's and it was because other people told me it was there. So that's so. cool. But anyway, so what we're talking about is there are Facebook groups, Instagram groups for like all of these interests. So if you like birds, if you like moths, if you like mushrooms, like it, pretty much anything you can find. There's a mushrooms of Ohio. There's a moths of Ohio. There's a plants of Ohio. There's a wildflowers of Ohio. It's everything. There's a Facebook group for everything now. So if you have an yeah. interest, you can find it there. So, so. Really cool. All right. So Tara, thank you again. We really appreciate you. Yeah, you're welcome. us with that knowledgeable information. And it helps people understand other things we're doing at the park other than just talking to you through a podcast. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, everybody. We hope you guys enjoyed, and we'll see you guys next time.